This morning, we launch into a new series in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, a series that we are entitling, In the Beginning. And I want to start this morning by telling you why we are here. I made the decision to preach this series sometime around the beginning of last summer when we were still very much in the middle of our study of Revelation and we were months away from its conclusion. At the time, I felt very strongly that this was the direction that we needed to go and my confidence in that decision has only increased as the months have gone by. And I want to begin by giving you four reasons that I believe the Lord would have us to give our attention to this particular book at this particular time in the life of our church. The first reason is biblical. Over the course of our more than a year-long, 14-month journey through the last book of the Bible, I became increasingly aware of just how vital the opening chapters of the first book of the Bible are to our understanding of the entirety of the Bible. Think back upon the last two chapters of Revelation. How on earth would would we be equipped to understand the meaning of that final vision without a solid grasp of the Garden of Eden, of the covenant between God and Adam, and of the tree of life? The entirety of biblical revelation rests upon the foundation that are constructed in the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis. Every major theological theme that are unfolded in the pages of Scripture which follow are introduced in these opening chapters. God, man, creation, covenant, sin, redemption, judgment. Listen to what Kenneth Matthews, he's a professor of Old Testament at Beeson Divinity School, He's the author of the New American Commentary volume on Genesis. Listen to what he wrote in his introduction to the book. He said, Genesis stands second to none in its importance for proclaiming the whole will of God, Acts 20, 27. It presents the literary and theological underpinning of the whole canonical scriptures. If we possessed a Bible without Genesis, we would have a house of cards without foundation or mortar. We cannot ensure the continuing fruit of our spiritual heritage if we do not give place to its roots, end quote. And I agree. My heart's desire is that First Baptist Nixa would be a strong and healthy and deep church full of strong and healthy and deep believers, and the fact of the matter is that we cannot have strong or healthy or deep believers without the biblical theological foundation that are provided in the opening chapters of Genesis. We need to understand this book. The second reason we're in Genesis is cultural. I don't think that there is a biblical doctrine more frequently or more forcefully attacked in our culture than the doctrine of creation. From the publication of Darwin's The Origin of Species in 1859 to the Scopes 
monkey trial in 1925 to Carl Sagan and the Cosmos Theolog- or, uh, television series in 1980 to Stephen Hawking's PBS special Genius this past summer. The prevailing atheistic, naturalistic, evolutionary worldview poses a constant threat to the biblical worldview that is laid down in these foundational chapters of Genesis, the foundational doctrine of creation. The question of origins, the origin of the cosmos, the origin of man, the origin of life upon the earth. That question will continue to be the battleground upon which the world and the powers of evil, Babylon, as we discovered in the book of Revelation, will continue to assault the faith of the church. Just this past summer, right here in the middle of the buckle of the Bible Belt, the Greene County Library stationed in its lobby a display on loan from the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., entitled, Exploring Human Origins, which posed the question very prominently right as you walked in, what does it mean to be human? And answered that question by tracing back through the supposed chain of human evolution in order to show that the only thing that makes us human are a few million years of random mutation and natural selection. There is no telling how many Christians in our neck of the woods, walked past or walked through that display and felt their faith under profound assault. My own children walked through it and questions abounded. In order to withstand that constant assault on our faith from the, from the prevailing naturalistic cultural worldview, we need strong, informed, reasoned convictions regarding the doctrine of creation. In other words, we need to understand this book. The third reason is pastoral. Also this past summer, I had a number of conversations with people who attend this church for whom this is a major source of confusion and doubt and fear. And I suspect that they are not alone, not by a long shot. There is no doubt in my mind that many of you experience the same emotions surrounding the doctrine and the topic of creation. Because when you see something or read something or hear something that seems to contradict your understanding of Genesis, you feel deep within you this unsettling rumbling in the foundations of your faith, similar to the way that you might feel if you were standing on the 50th floor of a skyscraper in the middle of an earthquake. It is, it is disconcerting, to say the least, when the ground beneath your feet begins to shift and to shake and you begin to feel the edifice of your faith beginning to sway. Combine this with the fact that most of us are rather ill-equipped to argue the age of the earth with geologists. Or the age of the cosmos with astrophysicists. Or evolutionary theory with geneticists or microbiologists. There there are a few of you here who can swim in those waters, but most of us can't. All we've got is this book. 
Therefore, it is imperative that we understand what it says. We need to understand this book. The fourth reason is personal. For most of my life, I have wrestled with the tension between the modern scientific consensus and the conservative evangelical opinion regarding the origin of the universe, the origin of life, and the origin of man. I felt the gnawing doubts arise when I watch the National Geographic channel or Nova on PBS and they make a claim that seems to contradict what I read in the book of Genesis. I had to agree this summer with my wife's assessment when we were watching Stephen Hawking's PBS special in which he was attempting to demonstrate how random mutations might occur within nature given enough time and enough chance. And she turned to me and she said something to the effect of, this feels a little blasphemous to be watching. And I said, I agree. But I don't think it should. See, I, I, I don't like to believe things that aren't true. I don't handle cognitive dissonance well. I feel very deeply what is at stake in the Genesis account. If the doctrines of creation and covenant, of God and man, of sin and redemption, as recorded in the earliest chapters of Genesis, are wrong, then my entire theology and my entire life crumbles to the dust. As Kenneth Matthews wrote, without Genesis, the Christian faith is nothing but a house of cards destined to fall. So I and you have a vested interest in getting Genesis right. We need to be able to trust its claims. We need to understand this book. So, how old is the earth? When was man created? Was man created? Or did he evolve from lower life forms? What about Neanderthal man that they're pulling out of the caves in southern France? What about Cro-Magnon man? Do all people on the face of the earth descend from Adam? Was there a Garden of Eden? Was there a snake? Was there a fall? Where did Cain's wife come from? Who were the peoples of whom Cain was afraid after he killed his brother Abel such that he complained to God and God had to place a mark on him so that all of these peoples wouldn't attack him and kill him? Was the flood local or global? Did two of every kind of animal fit into the ark? These are not insignificant questions. These are real questions that must be answered. What about the dinosaurs is not indolent speculation for children. You know, the questions that they ask when they're in the back of the car and you say, I don't know, ask your mother. You ought to be asking those questions. 
I think you ought to wonder what about the dinosaurs. And Lord willing, over the next several weeks, I want us together to explore those questions and to seek answers to them. If the Bible is to be believed, it must be true. It must be able to withstand such questions without crumbling to the ground. I'll never forget when my New Testament professor in uh, college said something that I'd never really thought of before. He said, God is not up in heaven biting his fingernails hoping we don't find the dinosaur bones. The Bible is able to withstand your examinations. I'm convinced that it can, and my aim over the next several weeks is to convince you as well. My aim in this series is not to preach the whole book of Genesis, but rather I'm going to confine myself to the first 12 chapters. Neither is my aim to exposit every verse, every word of these 12 chapters. Rather, I want to explore the major theological themes that run through this foundational portion of Scripture. Lord willing, I hope to offer you some apologetic resources and answers to your questions along the way. And by the end of our study, my earnest hope and expectation is that we will emerge with a stronger, deeper foundation for our faith, a foundation that is built upon the rock-solid conviction that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. A few months ago, I was having a conversation with a guy that I've been reading through the Bible with in hopes that he'll be converted and as is his habit, quite often, he was asking me some very difficult questions. On this particular occasion, it was about uh, the creation of Satan, the fall of Satan, the origin of evil, how that fits with the goodness of God, and so on and so forth. And the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about the creation and fall of Satan. So I did the best that I could from what the Bible does say, tried to reason out from from there, but eventually I had to stop because I sensed that we were straying away from the point. We were straying away from the purpose and we were in danger of getting lost. I told him that asking questions like these, it's okay, but it's dangerous. It's sort of like deep sea diving. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Imagine that, that you are in some sort of pressurized suit which enables you to descend down into the ocean depths, into what is known as the aphotic zone. Okay, that zone that is beneath a thousand meters deep and beyond where no sunlight can penetrate and the entirety of the region is shrouded in a thick black darkness. You cannot see your hand in front of your face. You want to explore all the way into the fathomless depths of the canyons and the trenches of the ocean floor. You want to explore these depths. You want to see what you can find. You want to find answers to your deepest questions, as it were, but it's dangerous down there. It's all too easy to lose your bearings, to forget which way is up and which way is down. People get lost down there. 
And sometimes they never find their way to the surface. So if you want to go exploring to the depths of the ocean, or to jump out of the metaphor, if you want to go exploring down into the depths of prehistory, you need a tether. Something sure and strong that keeps you connected to the surface and to the sunlight and to the ship. And I told this particular young man that too many people have tried to dive into the fathomless depths of creation and primeval history without such a tether. They've gotten lost and they've never returned because they've become convinced that there's no answer to be found, that the Bible is therefore not trustworthy. I, on the other hand, have a tether and I don't go diving without it. I have a tether that is sure and strong and secure and it keeps me attached to the surface and to the sunlight. And for that reason, I'm not afraid to go diving into the fathomless depths. I'm not afraid to dive into the fathomless depths of the geological and fossil record, afraid of what I might find. Or into the infinite recesses of space where the farthest star that we've been able to detect, I'm told, is 55 million light years away. It doesn't freak me out. I'm not afraid of paleontologists digging up dinosaur bones that they've dated back some 68 million years and beyond, or archaeologists who are unearthing skeletal remains of apparently near-human species that they date back 1.9 million years. Why am I not afraid of these things? I'm not afraid because I've got a sure and certain tether to the surface and to the sunlight of truth. I've got three, actually. And so this morning, before we descend into the depths of Genesis, I want to make sure that you're attached to these three tethers as well. When diving into the darkened depths of creation and primeval history and probing around in those those realms that I don't know much about, I don't know much about cosmology, geology, anthropology, sociology, archaeology, and all the other ologies that are out there. I'm not an expert in any one of those fields. When I go diving into them, I find it supremely important to remind myself of what I do know, namely theology. And my theological starting point is always the same. I know that Jesus of Nazareth is risen from the dead. That is my first and foundational tether. That is my starting point for all of my theological exploration. It is my ruling conviction. How do I know that the Genesis account of creation is accurate, reliable, trustworthy? By definition, it cannot be verified by external eyewitness account, can it? Nobody was there to say, yes, that's how it happened. But I have absolute confidence in the accuracy, reliability, and veracity of the Genesis account of creation fundamentally because Jesus of Nazareth is risen from the dead. Now how do I arrive from point B from point A? 
How do I arrive at, arrive at conviction that I can trust Genesis as being accurate, reliable, factual? Because I know that Jesus is risen. How does that impact my faith in Genesis? Well, let me tell you. There are two indisputable historical facts that form this conviction that Jesus of Nazareth is risen from the dead. The first is that on a certain date, namely Passover 30 AD, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified on a Roman cross outside the gates of Jerusalem. That event is indisputable, verified by numerous external testimonies, both Christian and secular. No reputable historian or scholar disputes that the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth occurred. The second indisputable fact is that three days later, by Jewish reckoning, on the first day of the week, the tomb in which Jesus of Nazareth was buried was found empty. That point is also beyond dispute. Too many enemies of Jesus had too much to gain by simply opening up his tomb, producing his body, and putting to an end forever all of these scurrilous rumors about his resurrection. The disagreement among his enemies, among the Jewish leaders and the Roman officials, and the followers of Christ in the first century and among secular historians and Christians ever since does not lie. The disagreement does not lie in whether the tomb was empty, but in why the tomb was empty. So I look at this, these two indisputable historical facts, this historical evidence, and I conclude that only two real possibilities exist to explain the evidence. The first is that the disciples of Jesus stole his body and invented the story of his resurrection. That's what the Jewish leaders and the Roman officials of the day claimed, according to Matthew 28, 11 to 15. And many modern critics have claimed the same ever since. The second possibility is that Jesus of Nazareth was actually raised from the dead just as he promised that he would. In places like Mark 8.31, Mark 9.31, and Mark 10.34. Now, I see an insurmountable problem with the first explanation. The disciples stole the body explanation. Those who claim to be the eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus, including the women, the disciples, and more than 500 others, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, they would either have to be delusional, or else devilishly deceptive. They would either have to be lunatics or else liars to go on claiming that Jesus was raised from the dead when really they knew that they had just stolen his body and hidden it somewhere. The first of those two options, that they were all delusional, does not hold water. We have the extant writings of at least seven men who claimed to be eyewitnesses of his resurrection. Matthew, Mark, John, Paul, James, Peter, and Jude. And their writings are not the product of mentally disturbed minds. 
They are clear, coherent, and commanding in their tone. They hold together amazingly intricate arguments and themes from start to finish. Mad people don't do that. These men were not lunatics. So what about the second option, that they were all liars? Stealing the body of Jesus in the dead of the night and then spreading abroad a story that they knew to be false. That option doesn't hold water either. See, nearly all who claimed to be eyewitnesses were severely persecuted throughout their lives, and yet not one of them ever renounced their claim. Many of them sealed their testimony with their blood unto death. It is unreasonable and illogical to claim that the followers of Jesus, the, those who claim to be eyewitnesses of his resurrection, were, were delusional or deceptive. Mass delusion or mass deception does not make rational sense of the evidence, which leaves only one rational option open. That is, unless you enter into the question bearing the uncompromising presupposition that Jesus of Nazareth could not have risen from the dead because people just don't rise from the dead. If that's your ruling presupposition, no amount of evidence is going to convince you. But I happen to think that it is stubborn and arrogant in the face of such overwhelming evidence to assume such an irrational and unreasonable choice. I must go where the evidence leads, and the evidence leads to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, was raised from the dead on the third day. Which leads me to a conclusion that forms my second tether. One of the eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus explains what it means that Jesus was raised from the dead. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, he was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus of Nazareth was a descendant of David according to the flesh. He was the legal son of Joseph the carpenter who was himself a descendant of David the king. But in his resurrection from the dead, Jesus was declared the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. That's what Paul says. Now, Paul doesn't mean that Jesus never claimed to be divine. He never claimed to be the Son of God prior to his death and resurrection. Jesus claimed that countless times. That is, in fact, the very reason why he was crucified. He was crucified for blasphemy. The blasphemy of claiming equality with God. A few examples will suffice. In Mark chapter 2, you remember that scene where Jesus is teaching in the house and the paralytic is lowered in by his friends into the house where Jesus was speaking. And Jesus said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Well, this stirred the crowd into an uproar. Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus responded by saying, 
that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and walk. And to the astonishment of the crowd, the man did. Now, the crowd was not wrong in their, their theological claim that no one but God can forgive sins. But Jesus was right in his claim that the Son of Man has been granted authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus possessed authority which belongs to God alone. And the crowd knew exactly what he was saying. The Jews in Jerusalem certainly understood that Jesus was claiming equality and identity with God. In John chapter 5, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day there by the pool of Bethesda with the explanation that my father is working until now and I am working. And then the Apostle John adds this comment, John 5, 17. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was calling God his own father, thereby making himself equal with God. Well, the crowd was outraged. The Pharisees were irate. And how did Jesus respond? Did he say, no, 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 no. You've misunderstood me. I'm not saying that I'm the same as God. That's ridiculous. Everybody knows That's not what he said. He turns right around and in the face of their outrage, he says that I have the ability to do whatever the Father does, 519. I have life in myself and I have authority to give it to whomever I wish, 521. I have authority to judge the world, 522. And I have authority to receive the worship and the honor of the nation such that whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. That's how Jesus responded to their claims. Those are divine prerogatives. And Jesus says, they're all of them mine. John chapter 10, when Jesus asked for which of his good works they were intending to stone him, Kind of a hilarious scene. I've done a lot of good things. I've, uh, I've given sight to the blind. I've made the lame to walk. I've, I've healed the leper. I've cleansed every disease. I've driven out every demon. I've raised the dead. Wh- uh, which one of these do you have a problem with? Well, their response is, it's not for your good works that you're doing that we want to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself equal with God. So Jesus certainly claimed divine status prior to his death. And his contemporaries understood that he was making claims to deity. Paul's point in Romans 1 is that by his resurrection, his claims to deity were validated in the sight of all men. So I agree with Paul's reasoning. I think it is logical, rational, and reasonable to believe that a man who claims divine status, who claims to be the unique, only begotten Son of God, with authority to forgive sins, authority to raise the dead, authority to judge the earth, and authority to receive the worship of the peoples, then validates that claim with countless miracles, who on numerous occasions predicts his own betrayal, arrest, trial, scourging, death, and resurrection, then experiences those things in exactly the way that he predicted he would, is indeed the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, and 
and is deserving of all of our faith, our obedience, and our worship. Number three. The third conclusion that comes from the first two. So follow my logic here. This is a logical message. Follow it. If Jesus of Nazareth is risen from the dead, then he is the Son of God and Lord of all. And if Jesus is the Son of God and Lord of all, then everything that he taught must be true and trustworthy. Jesus cannot be God if he says things that are untrue. Can we agree on that? For to be God is to be true and to speak truth. That's what it means to be God. R.C. Sproul tells the story of hosting a conference some years back in which a number of biblical scholars were invited to uh, present papers defending the inerrancy of Scripture. And he said that each scholar prepared their respective papers independently of one another, and yet when they all arrived at the conference center, every one of them had argued for the inerrancy of Scripture in the very same way, on the basis of Christology, which is the argument that I'm making this morning. Basically, it goes like this. If Jesus is God, as we've already established by his resurrection, then he must be both good and true. Therefore, everything that he says must be true and trustworthy. Now, some would object that Jesus was, as regards his humanity, limited in some sense in his omniscience. And maybe there were some times when he really didn't know what he was talking about. Maybe he honestly in his humanity got some things wrong or maybe in his humanity he accommodated to the ignorance of the age. Sproul responds to that objection by saying, in order to be good, a teacher must admit when he doesn't know something. Because to act as if you know something when you really don't know something is not good, it is deceptive. And Jesus, in fact, did this on occasion. But concerning the day or the hour, no man knows. Not even the angels of heaven, not even the Son, but the Father only. Jesus is good. He's a good teacher. And when he didn't know something, he said it. Therefore, everything he said if indeed he is good, is true and trustworthy. And nothing that he says can be false or misleading. Now this has massive implications for our study of Genesis. Because Jesus, being risen from the dead, and therefore the Son of God and Lord of all, being the Son of God and Lord of all, and therefore good and true in all that He says and all that He does, He said some pretty astounding things regarding the Scriptures of the Old Testament. Number one, He said the Scriptures, the law and the prophets, of which Genesis is a part, were infallible. Matthew 24, 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. John 10, 35, the scriptures cannot be broken. They are unfailing. They are infallible. Number two, he said the scriptures were authoritative. He quoted them on numerous occasions as the end of the argument. The basis for his reading, reading, or reasoning rather, including the Genesis account of the creation of the man and the woman and the institution of the marriage covenant. Remember when the Pharisees come to him, they're asking questions about divorce. Moses said, Moses commanded us to give the wife a a writ of divorce and to, to send her away. Remember how Jesus answered their question? He appealed to Genesis 2. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. For Jesus, the scriptures were the end of the argument. They were authoritative. Third, He said the scriptures were divinely inspired. Over and over again, he quoted the words of men as if they were the words of God. God said, and then he quotes from an Old Testament text. Fourthly, he quoted the Old Testament as though it were historical fact. He referenced events of the Old Testament and treated them as if they actually happened including the following events from the book of Genesis. The creation of Adam and Eve, Matthew 19, verse 4. The death of Abel, Luke 11, verse 51. Noah and the flood, Matthew 24, verse 37. The existence of Abraham as a real man, John 8, 56. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Matthew 10, 15. And the account of Lot and the death of his wife, Luke 17, 28. There was not a hint in Jesus' words that those were just mythological stories. Furthermore, Jesus authorized and commissioned his apostles to speak and write words that carried the same divine authority as his own words. Matthew 24:35. In the upper room, the night before his death, Jesus told his disciples. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine, therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. There's no difference in Jesus' mind between his words and the words of the apostles whom he commissioned and sent. Furthermore, the apostles were conscious of the fact that they were writing authoritative scripture on a par with the God-breathed words of the Old Testament. Go read 2 Peter 3.15 or 1 Thessalonians 2.13 or 1 Corinthians 14.37 or Revelation 
1.1. So let's wrap this up. Where are we? Because Jesus of Nazareth is risen from the dead, he is the Son of God and Lord of all. And because Jesus is the Son of God and Lord of all, everything he taught must be true and trustworthy. And because everything Jesus taught must be true and trustworthy, every claim he made regarding the Scriptures is also true and trustworthy, including the claims that the Scriptures are infallible, authoritative, divinely inspired, and historically factual. And because everything Jesus taught is true and trustworthy, then his promise to send the Holy Spirit to inspire the apostles to write scriptures bearing the same four characteristics as the Old Testament is also true. Therefore, on the basis of all of these other arguments, both Old Testament and New Testament are God-breathed scripture bearing the characteristics of infallibility authority inspiration and historical factual basis now we are in a position to state on the authority of scripture which itself is based on the authority of christ's resurrection Three convictions that are going to guard our study of these opening chapters of Genesis. First conviction that will guide us in our study, keep us tethered to the truth, is that the words of Genesis, every one of them, are God-breathed Scripture. Every one of them are infallible, authoritative, divinely inspired, historical fact. Now, look at me closely. This is not the same thing as saying that all of us have always rightly understood and interpreted those words. But it is to say that any interpretation of Genesis, any view of creation, which contradicts the words of Genesis, must be rejected out of hand on the authority of Christ's resurrection. Our job is to rightly divide the word of truth. But we cannot and will not accomplish this task until we are convinced and committed to the words of Genesis as words of truth. Therefore, any view that regards the opening chapters of Genesis as a myth borrowed from ancient cultures, which is the prevailing liberal view, must be rejected. Why? Because Jesus is risen from the dead. The second guiding conviction is that God created the heavens and the earth ex nihilo, out of nothing. This is the plain meaning of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it is affirmed in a multitude of texts throughout Scripture, probably most plainly in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, which is God-breathed Scripture. Why do we believe that? Because Christ is risen from the dead. 
Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the, by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. God called the universe into being out of nothing. Merely by the word of his power. Therefore, any interpretation of Genesis which posits that matter is eternal, it's always existed, including any form of naturalistic evolution, must be rejected. Why? Because Christ is risen from the dead. Third guiding conviction is God's direct creation of Adam and from Adam, Eve, and from Adam and Eve, the entirety of the human race. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of all the earth. Acts 17, 26. Furthermore, God entered into a covenant with Adam as the head of the human race. A covenant which Adam broke. Thus bringing the entire human race under death and condemnation and the wrath of God. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who is the second Adam who is the head of a new race of redeemed man. And by his obedience unto death, he has justified by his grace all who are united to him by faith. Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass, Adam's trespass, led to condemnation for all men, for all humanity, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men, namely all men who are united to that second Adam by faith. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam's, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, Christ's, the many will be made righteous. The Apostle Paul, in other words, bases his entire gospel upon an historical Adam, an historical covenant, an historical fall, and an historical Christ. It's sometimes been stated, and it is absolutely true, no Adam, no gospel. Therefore, any view of the origin of man which denies God's direct creation of Adam as the head of the entire human race, must be rejected, including any version of human evolutionary theory. So guided by these three convictions, which arise from our three interconnected tethers, that strand of three cords that cannot be quickly broken and keep us securely fastened to the surface and to the sunlight of truth, we're going to begin next week to dive into the text of Genesis and to explore the, the fathomless depths of creation in search of our answers to our deep questions because they're there. And in search of an unshakable foundation that is rooted in the rock-solid granite conviction that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How do I know? Because Jesus of Nazareth is risen from the dead.